Good morning. We have uh, been particularly blessed the last several Sundays with um, <clears throat> more people than usual. We're thankful for that. We're glad that you're here. Delighted to see you and have you participating with us in this uh, worship. I want you to listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I find that a remarkable text because for one thing it tells us not only about the sins, some sins that will cause people not to enter the kingdom of God, but also because Paul says to the Corinthians, such were some of you. That means when the church in Corinth assembled, <clears throat> excuse me, as we are assembled today, that among them were former drunkards, former thieves, former practicing homosexuals, former greedy people, former idolaters, former practitioners of pagan religions of every sort. But it's also remarkable because he says, such were some of you. They are that way no more. They have been reborn by Jesus' blood. They have been, as Paul says in Romans 6, verses 1 to 4, buried with Christ in the act of baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, and as a result, they're not what they used to be, and they do, they do not live the way they used to live. What Paul says to the church in Corinth, I think, was also true of the people to whom Peter first wrote this letter that we're reading together, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Most probably, most of his readers, because of where they lived, had a pagan past. They probably did not grow up in Judaism with some degree of morality, following the law of God, knowing right from wrong. They grew up without any of that. And so what at one time to them was perfectly acceptable and was acceptable to the people around them was no more. But not only was it acceptable to the people around them, it was expected of the people around them. And you know, as you go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you see the same thing. The kinds of things that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 6 were expected behavior. They were considered normal. It was considered just what people do. And if you're a, if you're a normal person, that's what you're going to do. And that's what the people in Asia Minor would have thought that surrounded the church to whom Peter was reading, but those days for them were over. The past was in the past where it belonged. They weren't walking in those things anymore. They weren't practicing those things anymore. They had ceased from sin, Peter says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the human passions, but by the will of God. Now what meant the most of them was doing what God wanted. What meant the most of them was following the things that God had said in his word were the way that they should live. Their 
uh, past that uh, Peter is thinking about, he describes in these, these words. He says, the time is past, it suffices <clears throat> for doing what the Gentiles, that's unbelievers, what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And he came as a shock to the neighbors around them, to the people that they lived around before they became Christians. He came as a shock to those people that they still didn't do those things. They were amazed, Peter said. They were surprised that you do not now join them in this same kind of behavior because you did once before, and they're having a hard time grasping and understanding why don't you now? What has happened that you're not now living in the way that you used to live? I don't think it's any different today. You know, if a person today, living by today's standards, becomes a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and changes their way of life, I think it's going to shock people around them. I think it's going to shock people around you that you don't do the things you used to do, that you don't talk the way you used to talk, that you don't tell the kind of jokes that you used to tell, that you won't even listen to those kind of things, that you don't... Uh, haunt the places that you used to haunt, that you, you, you don't indulge in the kind of stuff that you used to indulge in. They will be surprised at that. But not only that, Peter says, these pagan neighbors around them were unwilling to stand by and just let them change. They were unwilling to stand by and watch their life become better. They were unwilling to accept the fact that these people who had once joined them in this immorality no longer will do it. And they are not only surprised about it, but Peter says they malign you, or as the NIV says, they heap abuse on you. They aren't just willing to say, okay, this person has changed. I'm going to let them change. I'm going to let them do what they think is right. And do No, they're going to abuse you because you don't do the things that you used to do. They're going to abuse you because you don't follow what they follow. Immoral believers often feel judged by the lives of believers who refuse to engage in what they used to do, and so they lash out. They don't want to live self-disciplined lives, and they don't want anybody else to live a self-disciplined life. And so what Peter is describing is not just peer pressure. We've all felt that at times, haven't we? We've all felt that, that pressure that others put upon us to try to get us to conform to what they think is okay, what they think is good, what they think is right. It, this isn't just peer pressure. This is peer pressure plus. This is peer pressure with punishment added to it. They're going to make you pay. And Peter says you have to acknowledge that. You have to be ready for that. That some people are going to try to make you pay because you do not follow the ways that they follow. I don't think it's any different now, do you? I don't think it's any different at all that so much of the hostility that we see in the world toward Christian faith has the same petty motives. People who live by the lowest standards will despise and lash out at those who insist on following Jesus and his teachings. You're going to experience the same thing. So what are Christians supposed to do about it? How are we supposed to respond when those around us who do not share our faith are not only surprised that we will not do the things that we used to do, but also heap abuse on us and mistreat us, make us pay for not living in the ways that they want us to live. Well, Peter says, first of all, expect it. You know, it helps sometimes if you know what's coming, doesn't it? Uh, it helps that you're, you know, you're looking for the fastball, you know, or you're looking for the curve. You're expecting it. 
And so he says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says this is not strange. This is normal. This is to be expected. It isn't pleasant. It isn't right. It isn't something that you enjoy. But he says it is something that's going to happen, so get ready for it. And he says uh, to be... Uh, ready for what he calls a fiery trial. And that suggests that some of this opposition can get pretty rough, doesn't it? A fiery trial. So be ready for it. Expect it. Don't expect the world to try to help you live for Christ. Uh, it, you know, it's too bad, but when I was growing up, the world would help you live for Christ because most of the world shared the same basic morality uh, that's Christian morality. Our, our culture was still that influenced by Christianity. That people around you who perhaps themselves were not practicing Christians would know that it was right not to steal and to lie and to commit adultery and all those other things. And so you'd be encouraged to do the right thing. It's not like that anymore. It's not like that anymore. The world now is not going to help you live for Christ. So don't expect it. Expect them to be opposed to it. Then the second thing he says in verse 1 of chapter 4 is arm yourself against it. Arm yourself against it. How do you do that? Not, not arm yourself in the sense of, of weaponizing so that you can retaliate, but so that you can endure the way that Christ endured. Arm yourself with the same thought that Jesus had. Arm yourself. Prepare yourself by thinking, no matter what people throw at me, I'm not going to throw it back. No matter what people try to do, I'm not going to do it in retaliation. When Linda and I lived in St. Louis, one of our very dear friends there was a man named Stanley Shipp. Stanley was one of the most devoted men I've ever known. And uh, he had a tremendous influence upon both of us. Uh, we ended up moving from St. Louis to Wyoming, partly to understand Stanley's influence because he had previously preached in Wyoming. And I met one of his friends who was a preacher in Wyoming one day, a man named Judd a white field. And Judd was a big, raw bone man. He was about 6'5 or 6'6. Six, six. He was in his 60s by the time I met him. But when Stanley had met him, he was a young man working in the oil fields. And he was a profane man. He told me one day, he said, You know, I've had a whole case of Coke bottles broken over my head. Now, those of you who remember Coke bottles, they're pretty thick. They used to be. They weren't plastic at one time, folks. They, they were not, they were glass. And I said, how did you have a whole case broken over your head at one time? He said, one by one. <laughs> That's how many barroom fights he'd been in. He inhabited the bars and he fought and he was, he was a rough customer. But Stanley met him and taught him about Jesus. And this man who had had a, a whole case of Coke bottles broken over him in his lifetime became a follower of Christ. He went back out to the oil field the first day. And some of his friends out there knew what he had become. They knew he had begun to follow Jesus, and they were going to put him to the test. An oil field worker's private possession and most prized possession is his hard hat. And so when Judge came walking up that day, that very first day, one of them walked up to him without a word, took that hard hat off, threw it on the ground, and split it in half with an axe just to see what he would do. Well, he came back to Stanley, and he said, Stanley, 
can't I just knock one of their heads off? Just one, and then they'll leave me alone. And they would make fun of Stanley, and they would make fun of the gospel. They'd make fun of Jesus. He said, just let me, just let me hit one of them. And Stanley said, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. What Peter is saying is arm yourself with the same thought of Jesus. Not that you're ready to knock somebody's head off, but that you are ready not to retaliate. You are going to expect this kind of treatment. And you're not going to retaliate. You're going to experience suffering the same way that Jesus did. You see, what Peter's still talking about in this letter is what he started talking about way back in chapter 2, the sufferings of Jesus. And he's saying, here's how you live out the likeness of Jesus in your own life. Just as Jesus had abuse uh, heaped on him, you're going to have it heaped on you. And so arm yourself with the same way of thinking the way that Jesus did. He suffered in the flesh to save us. And he says, now you're going to suffer in the flesh in order to follow him. Whoever has suffered in the flesh, he says, has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I like the way the NIV puts it. Whoever suffers in the flesh is done with sin. You know, if you are willing and are devoted enough to Jesus that you will suffer for Christ, you're not going to find sin very attractive. If you have gone so far as to endure abuse and suffering for the name of Jesus, you are going to become less and less in love with this world and less and less in love with sin. You're not going to want anything to do with it. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The point is, if, if you're willing to go so far as to suffer, then you won't be interested in pursuing your old sinful ways. Your discipleship will be real. Your discipleship will be real. Suffering has a purifying effect. So arm yourself with the same way of thinking, Peter says. Now that's pretty heavy, isn't it? That's pretty heavy to think that if I follow Jesus, I'm going to suffer. And when I suffer, I can't knock somebody's head off. When I suffer, I'm expected to Accept it the same way that Jesus did. What's our motivation for doing that? Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody go through life knowing that your way of life is going to cause others to, to dislike you and to heap abuse on you? Why would you do that? Peter says, first of all, in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So that for whatever time you have on this earth, you're not living it by human passions. You're living it by the will of God. He really specifies two motives there. Number one, we are here in the flesh for a limited amount of time. We all are. We're here on barred time. We're here for a short period of time. And when that time is over, we will answer to God for the way we've lived our lives. Did you know that's what judgment is about? You know, people say, oh, judgment, what a horrible subject. No, judgment means that what you do matters to God. Everything you do matters to God. Your life matters to God. And when your time on this earth is over, you will meet God in judgment. That's one motive for doing the right thing. You don't want to stand before God having lived your life in a godless way and having pursued the, the ways of the flesh instead of the ways of the Spirit. But the other motive that Peter mentions is, it's God's will. It's God's will. You can't please him in any other way. But then he mentions another motive. Those who abuse you will answer to God for it. 
Look at verse 5. They may heap abuse on you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, he says. They will give account to him who judges the living and the dead. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, what? That will he also reap. Whatever people sow, they're going to reap. And if they sow abuse on God's people, what do you think God is going to do? Go back and read your Old Testament. Find out what happened when people abused the people of Israel. Find out what happened when they uh, mistreated the people of God. God says, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. You know what the apple of your eye is? That's not just a figure of speech. The apple of your eye is the pupil. So whoever abuses one of God's people is poking God in the eye. And God's not going to like that. They are going to answer for what they have done. So that's another motive. Now, there is a judgment that we all have to face. But there's a judgment that we don't have to face. Verse 6, he says, This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What in the world is Peter talking about? How in the world can the gospel be preached to dead people? Well, it says the NIV puts it, those who are now dead. They weren't dead when the gospel was preached to them. But they're now dead. He's talking about people who have gone on. They followed Jesus in their lifetime, but they they have gone on now, he says. And this is why the gospel was preached to them, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You know, every one of us has to face the judgment of death. We all have to face that. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of that tree that I told you not to eat, you will surely die. Sin brings death. That's a judgment that's come on all of us because we're all sinners. So we're all going to experience that judgment of death. He's talking about believers who have believed and heard and obeyed the gospel, though. And though they are now dead, he says, they will live in the spirit. They will be made alive in the spirit. And they've been judged in the flesh as people are, as everyone is, even Christians are not exempt from that judgment. We will all experience that judgment. But at the same time, he says, they will live in the Spirit the way God does. I want you to think about that. Living in the Spirit the way God does. Having that kind of life that is characteristic of God himself. You know, for one thing, it's a life that doesn't end. That's why we call it eternal life. It's a life that shares in the nature of God. It's a life that shares in in the eternity with God. And so even though we are judged in the flesh, we will face death physically. We will live in the spirit the way God does. We all die physically, but in Christ, we will live in the spirit and live forever as God does. You see, here's the question that has to be faced by those who refuse to believe in Jesus. Here's the question that has to be faced by them. What are you going to do about that first judgment? What are you going to do about death? What are you going to do about the fact that at some point, whether soon or late, you will pass from this life into eternity? What are you going to do about it? You know, most people do one of two things. 
They either deny that there is an eternity. They say, oh, you just die and that's it. You know, you're just, uh, you're like a rover. You're dead all over. You know, there's just nothing there. No, nothing to experience afterward. That's what they're hoping. But the other way they try to cope with it is just not think about it. But the reality is we're all going to face it. And if you don't believe in Jesus who offers you that eternal life, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What's your solution to something that you know is coming down the road? What are you going to do about death? You see, he is our only hope. But in him, there is every hope. So we have to face it. The world's not going to applaud our decision to follow Jesus. They're not going to encourage us to turn away from immoral, ungodly behavior. In fact, they're going to make it as hard on us as they possibly can. But there are plenty of good reasons to do it anyway. One of those reasons is that Jesus suffered in the flesh and he'll bless you for doing the same thing. Another reason is that God clearly reveals his will in his word. And it isn't his will for you to live an uncontrolled, sinful life. Another reason is that those who criticize you and abuse you and make fun of you and reject you and ostracize you and do all those other things that they can do to you, even if they were to kill you, will have a judgment of their own to face that's worse than they can possibly imagine. The greatest reason of all is because if you allow yourself to be judged in the flesh the way people are, and you're following Jesus, you'll be made alive in the Spirit like God. That's what God offers you. That's what God is holding out to us. So you may suffer now for living for Jesus, but it's more than worth it. So you ought to start living for him today. You ought not to want to live one more day of your life without knowing that you have the, the solution to the problem of death. And that solution is Jesus who died for your sins. If you're not following him yet, we encourage you to do that and to do it today. And we'll help you make your confession of faith in Jesus and be baptized in him and begin your life on that road that leads to life in the spirit like God. Let's stand together and sing.